Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 125 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We're going to jump right in and say thank you to some new supporters that we have. We have two new supporters via Patreon, John, our mystery man, and Sarah. Thank you both so much for that. We really appreciate it. What more could we say other than thank you? It's really wonderful to have your support. And also we got a direct donation from Shuli. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Shuli. There are three different ways you can really support us. One is through the Patreon page, which is in our show notes. You can send us a check directly or you can PayPal us. And we really appreciate the support that you all give so we can make this passion project available, really. Yeah, and and hopefully keep getting better and then having Biblio Adventures in the near future again. And thank you all for listening. And another great way to support us is to just help spread the word. And if you have a book friend who's not into podcasts yet, uh, let them know about us. We might be the, the gateway into their new podcast addiction. Yes, that's right. We would love to be that kind of a gateway (laughs) drug, wouldn't we? (laughs) Thank you, everybody. So um, I'm going to start off by reading a poem. This poem is called If, and it's by Shuli Kaywood from her just newly released collection, Trouble Can Be So Beautiful, at the beginning. If I were an avocado, I could stop rot with the simple pit of my heart. My seed would be celebrated my scaly skin touched, my worth determined by my tenderness. I could stand against the acidity of your sliced tomatoes and bite of jalapeno, and none of it would wither who I was, who I might be, if I were an avocado. I could rise from where my mother once took root, a land of saints and miracles, of water served in silver pitchers, of siestas and serenades, My name, no longer yours, aguacati, palta, butterfruit, alligator pear, I would cost more than you would want to pay. I would be neither savory nor sweet, and you could no longer accuse me of extremes. I could remain on your cold shelf, tucked beside the milk, butter, bread, behind the shut door of everything you have forgotten and I would ripen. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that poem. Shuli's poems, I mean, I really loved this collection, um, and I found it very accessible. And, you know, her poems have a lot of hidden meaning, but you can get to it, you know, on, a, on an easy read. So I really appreciate that about her writing. Yeah, you can put yourself into it in mm-hmm. a way. Yeah. Well, that was a great poem to start with, because at the end of this episode, we have an interview with Julie talking about her new collection of poetry. We sure do. And she even reads a poem. We don't often, if ever, I don't know, have people read from their work, but it just seemed appropriate to have her read one of her poems to Mm -hmm. us. All right. So what are you currently reading? I started a couple days ago a book called The Hair by Melanie Finn. Uh, Thank you to $2 Radio Press for sending us both copies. Uh, This is a really small press out of Columbus, Ohio, my old stomping grounds that I just found, and I'm, I'm thrilled to find them. We'll put a link to their website in the show notes. Their lit catalog is just really interesting and unusual. 
so I'm, I'm not very far into it, but it's about a young woman, Rosie, who's college age. She is at Parsons School of Design, and she's at MoMA in New York City, and she meets an older man, and they start a relationship together. So far, the book is kind of uncomfortable, but in a really page-turning way. So I'm enjoying it tremendously. Uh, It's touted as kind of like a feminist thrill ride of a book, which got my attention for sure. (laughs) So that's about all I know about it so far again. And I'm reading this for my book club too. So I think it's going to be a great one to discuss. And again, it's called The Hair by Melanie Finn. What about you? Nice. Well, I'm reading Everything I Found on the Beach. This is by Sinan Jones. He's a Welsh writer. Uh, This book came out in 2011 originally from Granta Press. And I'm reading it as part of the Wales Readathon, which I did last March as well. A couple years ago, I read a novel by Jones called The Cove that I really liked. And you read that too, Emily. Yeah, Um, I loved it. So this one is a bit darker (laughs) so far. It is about three different people. Um, The book opens with a dead body found on the beach. So that's the first thing found on the beach. Um, (laughs) And then I'm in the part now about a Polish man who's emigrated with his family from Poland to Wales and is in that kind of awful situation where he has to work for 12 months straight to qualify for benefits And then, you know, as they're getting close to that 12-month point, the company lays them off for three weeks. So it's called a pretty dark book, and already it is heading down that direction. But um, I really enjoy his writing. It's very sparse. Is that the right word? Yeah, I was going to say, because The the Cove was a really quick read and kind of a small book, but it said a lot Mm -hmm. in a few words. Yeah, absolutely. Again, that's Everything I Found on the Beach by Sinan Jones. Sounds great. I'm also reading Home Cooking, A Writer in the Kitchen by Lori Colwyn. Oh, my gracious, where has she been all my life? (laughs) I love this book so much. Shout out to our buddy, author Matthew Goodman, who I reached out to and said, I'm looking to read some food writing. Who do you recommend? And he said, oh, I think you would love Lori Colwyn. And he got it right. So I'm enjoying it. She is sadly no longer with us. She passed away at the age of 48 really young, kind of at the height of her career. She's written, um, she had was writing for Gourmet Magazine and also wrote some novels, which I'd like to look into. This is um, her nonfiction writing essays. And she's kind of irreverent and funny and just not precious at all. You know, the food world, I love the Food Network and I could watch cooking shows all day and be a very happy camper, but some of them are a little precious, you know, Mm -hmm. and some recipes are really complicated with a million ingredients and she's just totally no nonsense. And I made her beef stew over the weekend, which, you know, she's kind of like, you can put this in, but you don't have to. (laughs) She's just really laid back about her recipes and it turned out really well. The gentleman caller my Irishman was very happy with a little bit of beef stew. So I'm treating this 
like it's so this talking about precious, you know, the book is precious to me. So I've just been reading an essay at a time because I don't want to get through it, Mm -hmm. which is kind of funny, you know. (laughs) But I think I will check out some of her fiction writing uh, when I do finish this. Again, it's called Home Cooking, A Writer in the Kitchen by Lori Colwyn. Excellent. Well, I'm also reading a book on my e-reader. This is my nighttime book, my in-bed book. It is A House at the Bottom of the Lake by Josh Mallerman. This book was originally published in the UK in 2006. It's being released here in the United States on April 30th by Del Rey. It has a great premise and a really cool cover. These two teenagers are going on their first date and they're going canoeing. It's a boy and a girl. They're 17. And there are these three lakes, well, two lakes for sure, but then they discover this third lake through this tunnel that they have to you know, try and paddle through scraping off the sides of the canoe and everything. And um, there's graffiti on it. So people have been there before, but then they're in this third lake and they see a house below the water. Sounds really good and creepy. It's a horror novel. It sounds great. The execution so far isn't exactly wowing me. It's a lot more telling than showing at Mm. this point. You know, they, they take turns diving down at first and they're down there a little bit too long to be holding their breath for people who aren't practiced at holding their breath. So you have to suspend a little bit of belief, I guess you could say. And one of the things that almost made me quit reading last night was one of the teens comes up from the water and he climbs the ladder into the canoe. Oh, no. And I'm like, uh, have you ever seen a canoe? Like they don't have ladders. So that was kind of like almost the last straw. But I'm going to stick with it a little bit longer and just see... Mallerman wrote The Bird Box, which was oh. that popular movie, I think, with yeah. Sandra Bullock a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah. Apparently, maybe they're releasing some of his backlist because of the popularity of that movie and then and then people seeking out the book that it was based on. Oh, that can always lead to trouble. I mean, sometimes there's reasons that an author's old books weren't, A, either never published or B, you know, kind of withered away. Right. Yeah. You know, because they're earlier works. And in other times, it's a magical thing to discover somebody's backlist. Yes. You know, we'll see. I'm going to I'm going to give it a little bit longer. So again, that's A House at the Bottom of the Lake by Josh Mallerman coming out April 30th. I'm just going to say this about canoes, too. You can't really get in and out of a canoe that's in the middle of a body of water. Like they tip over. Well, you have to be really practiced at it for sure. And it also depends on the style of the canoe some are better maybe there are that yeah maybe there are ladders like rope ladders you can hang out i don't know i can't get back in and out of my kayak i'm i'm in trouble if i tip over in my kayak paddleboard's a little different but well (laughs) laura and i practice we went to a lake and we practiced getting back in the kayaks after we intentionally Mm -hmm. fell out just to be able to do it maybe we could could do do that oh yeah yeah. Okay. It's not easy and it kind of yeah. hurts a little bit, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe we can have a book cougars get back into your kayak practice session this summer. Right. <laughs> yes. I think that's a great idea. So the uh, I'm reading another book. I'm reading around in it. I'll hold this up for Emily to see. It's the one I mentioned last week about celebrating libraries. It's called Reading Rooms. America's foremost writers celebrate our public libraries with stories, memoirs, essays, and poems. 
and it has I, I think I was you know kind of joking a little bit this one came out in 1991 so I was like oh I wonder who the foremost writers were considered well this is actually a collection that goes back in time a bit they have excerpts from like Richard Wright, Eudora Welty, Edith Wharton. I'm enjoying just kind of flicking around in it. I read a bunch of the poems that were included. It's broken down by different types of libraries and then different types of behavior in libraries. So there's a section on small town libraries, city libraries. There's a section on the librarian, children in the library, love in the library, mystery and murder in the library, and... um a couple more. I just wanted to read this one short piece that I thought listeners might get a kick out of. Oh, and this is a funny thing too. There is a, a mimeographed interlibrary loan request form that was dated oh. May 28th, 1991 from somebody. You don't see those very often. So that tells you when the last time the book was checked out too, probably. Right. Unless readers, you know, like me are just going to leave it in there for somebody else to find. But the thing I want to read, it's just a a short piece that Amy Tan wrote when she was eight years old. She wrote this as part of a contest sponsored by the Citizens Committee for the Santa Rosa Library in California. And I'm going to read it with no corrections in it. My name is Amy Tan, eight years old, a third grader in Matanza's school. It is a brand new school and everything is so nice and pretty. I love school because the many things I learn seem to turn on a light in the little room in my mind. I can see a lot of things I have never seen before. I can read many interesting books by myself now. I love to read. My father takes me to the library every two weeks and I check five or six books each time. These books seem to open many windows in my little room. I can see many wonderful things outside. I always look forward to go to the library. Once my father did not take me to the library for a whole month, he said, the library was closed because the building is too cold. I missed it like a good friend. It seems a long, long time my father took me to the library again just before Christmas. Now it is on the second floor of some stores. I wish we can have a real nice and pretty library like my school. I put 18 cents in the box and signed my name to join Citizens of Santa Rosa Library. Oh. Again, that was by eight-year-old Amy Tan. Oh, so many <laughs> lovely lines in there. Like you could already tell she was a writer, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought that was really sweet. Oh, so sweet. Yeah. So again, yeah. that was reading rooms. And the editors um, are Susan Allen Toth and John Coughlin. I miss libraries like an, an old friend myself right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow, that's really fun, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so just read. How many books have you read recently? Have you been on or still ripping through them? I really have. I was so excited to get a, a new book that just came out in March called We Run the Tides by Vendela Vida. Vendela Vida is the founding editor of Believer Magazine, which is one of my favorite all-time magazines. And thank you to Echo Books for sending me this copy. It's a coming-of-age novel. The main body of the book takes place in the year 1984 to 85. That's kind of when Chris and I were 
growing up as well. And um, it takes place in the Seacliff neighborhood of San Francisco, which is a neighborhood of these big, beautiful homes that overlook the ocean. And our main protagonist is Yulabi, who's a middle schooler in this time period. And she and her friend Maria have learned to literally run the tides. There are two beaches that Seacliff neighborhood looks out over one is called china beach and one is called baker beach and there's this promontory that juts out and if they time the tides just right they can run from one beach to the next beach and there's a scene in the book where they're doing that that really it was so vivid i felt like i was there and i could hear the waves splash and i was nervous that they would make it (laughs) from one beach to the next This book reminded me a lot of, you know, my own middle school years, which you couldn't pay me a million dollars to go back to. And my daughter's middle school years, where, you know, one day she came home from school and her best friend had declared she didn't want to be her best friend anymore. And she had no idea why. And that's exactly what happens in this book. Mm. Yulabi has, I think it's three or four friends they live in this neighborhood they walk to school together they go to an all-girls school they there's a scene where they have a lemonade stand you know her best friend is maria and then all of a sudden she's ostracized from the friends and there's that classic scene in the cafeteria where she's going to sit with them and they kind of put their hand up like no harsh it's It's so harsh and it's so true. I mean, the middle school years are really challenging. And Yulabi has a penchant for um, stretching the truth. And so then the novel really starts to take off. It's all from her point of view and how she's experiencing life and relationships with her family and the neighborhood boys and all of it. And then, you know, the devolution of this friendship that meant so much to her. Venda La Vida, I think, is a master storyteller. I loved the writing in this book. I whipped through it, and I give it two of my thumbs up <laughs> and encourage people to go out and find it. Again, it's called We Run the Tides by Vendela Vida. That's great. Now, is that a middle reader or a YA book? It's an adult? No, okay. it's an adult book. It's just that it takes place in that, you know, middle school age. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Definitely adult themes Mm -hmm. in it. Yeah. Well, I read a book, a novel that you read too. We had a surprise buddy read. That was The Drowning Kind by Jennifer McMahon, which comes out on April 6th from Gallery Scout Press. Thanks to NetGalley for the copies. I believe we both read it through uh, NetGalley. Yeah. And, And the publisher, thank you for that. So the drowning kind, wow. It was creepy. It Very was creepy. creepy book about a creepy pool that is fed by natural spring. It's in Vermont, and it has a history that some people, it helps some people avoid it completely, and other people are desperate for whatever help they believe the spring can provide them with. It's usually physical ailments. But as the grandmother says, I believe the water gives and the water takes. So you have to be careful what you wish for. Literally. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So it's mainly about this one sister who gets a call that her sister, who she grew up, they were very close when they were growing up, has died. That she was found dead floating in the pool 
after she had inherited the house from her grandmother or their grandmother, I should say. So the story kind of takes off from there. I don't know what else I would say because I don't want to spoil it at all for people. It's not necessarily what you think it would be in some ways. There were some things like the ending. I was just like, what? Like I had to reread it a couple times. And there were a couple things that were kind of left that I don't know if McMahon could have resolved them and just chose not to or what this means for her next book. Oh, that's a good question. I didn't think about that. I'm going to go so far as to say I did not like the ending. Yeah, I didn't either. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I didn't. It made me also think like, do I need to think about the entire book in a different way? Right. I mean, I don't know if people are familiar with the story of The Sixth Sense. Do you know that story? I do. Chris, it was a movie, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And if I remember correctly, like there's a point, this is, it's by M. Night Schmalian. I never know how to say his last name, the, the director. And he likes to do movies that have a big twist and a big shock. And there, I think I was about three quarters of the way, I mean, fairly deeply into this book when I was like, oh, this is going to have like a sixth sense and, you know, twist ending where something, you know, that you think what you think's been happening all along has not been happening. And then when I got to the ending, I was like, I don't even know if that's what happened. Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I'm sorry, you know, I purposely did not talk to you. We've talked several times since we both finished this book. But I was like, I don't want to talk to her until we're talking about this on mic because... <laughs> I'm dying to know what she thought of the ending. So it's really interesting to know that you felt the same way. Yeah, I really did. I just thought, what? And then I, you know, I think I did read it three times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it might be a book I reread again when it comes out. I might get a copy of it to read in paper. Mm, Yeah. Just to see like how she did different things, you know, Mm -hmm. in all my free time. Right, exactly. (laughs) Or I might read a handful of reviews first. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, so it takes place via two points of view. And all of it takes place in Vermont. And this house is very much a character. And it's creepy. And it's wet. There's a lot of water because of this spring. I enjoyed the reading of it. It's to me, it was the ending that was just like, what? So yes, if any of you listeners read it, get back to us. Yeah, we would love to talk about this because it is one of those books that, like Emily said, I really enjoyed the reading of it too, but the ending was just like, left me really discombobulated. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, The Drowning Kind, Jennifer McMahon. Yeah, thanks Jennifer McMahon for another good read, you know, and (laughs) just confusion For confusing us. Yeah, and I have to (laughs) say I went for my first kayak around the cove yesterday and something bumped my boat at one point you know and it's just like it really made me think of that book you know it's just like what like oh, oh my gosh fish. <laughs> between that and the book you're reading with the house underwater holy smokes and then the oh book gosh, where there's yeah. a dead body on the beach like you're really creating some fodder for having lots of imagination because when you're out in the water <laughs> things happen you see things and you're not always sure what they are, you know? <laughs> yeah, and things happen fast quite often. Yes, exactly. And then you realize like, oh, I'm just in this little boat. Trouble. <laughs> <Hey>, totally. <laughs> 
Well, I read The Stills by Jess Montgomery. This is the third book in the Kinship series. The other books are The Widows in the Hollows. We've read both of those. This book just came out this past Tuesday. So happy book birthday. I'm so envious that, you, that you've that you read it. That is definitely on my list. Yeah, I really liked it. Um, this is to remind people, this series is based on the main character is Sheriff Lily, who's based on the true life first female sheriff in Ohio, Southern Ohio. And Lily's back at it again with her friend Marvina, who the opening scene of the book, so this isn't a spoiler because it happens straight away, someone is shot right by Marvina's still where she is illegally, illicitly making booze. And she's making the 20s, 30s, right? Right. It's during Prohibition. And the reason Marvina is doing it is because her daughter is ill with asthma and she needs to take her to the doctor and she's trying to make extra money to be able to do that. Interestingly, the cure, I'm using air quotes, that she's trying to use with her daughter that's been prescribed by the doctor was asthma cigarettes. Oh, my God. Which was a real thing. Just talks about that in the, you know, acknowledgments or author's note. I can't remember which it was that that true was a real thing back then. The gentleman caller has asthma. And as he was doing his breathing machine one day, I was like, hey, you know, little fast fact. <laughs> Did you know there used to be asthma cigarettes? And he just looked at me cross-eyed. So anyway, I loved this book. It was it's a great third jaunt back into these characters who I do miss when the books are over and it's told from two points of view it's told from Fiona's point of view and Lily and the book takes place over the course of one month it starts right around Thanksgiving and ends around Christmas time Benjamin Lily's little love interest that popped up in the second book is back as well as some of the other characters that we saw before, including Fiona, who's now married to George Vogel, who is kind of a man who makes this curative tonic. But in this book, he's got bigger ambitions. I'm just going to leave it there. I really enjoyed it. So reminder to people, the first book in the series is The Widows. The second book is The Hollows. And this is the third book, The Stills. And Jess was on the podcast. We'll put a link in the show notes for that to remind people. Great. I look forward to that. And and just so listeners know, if you haven't heard us talk about the first two books in the series, Lily, you know, based on that real life uh, woman, her husband was the sheriff and died in the line right. of duty. And she took over his duties, didn't want to do it, but the town came to her And then she eventually got elected as sheriff, too. So, you know, that's kind of just a fascinating way that this woman, you know, eventually had this career that she had no intention of having. You never know what life could throw at you. I think Jess does a a fantastic job with that because she, you know, weaves in, you know, historical facts, but has also, you know, created a different kind of story out of it. And in each of the books, there's a murder of sorts and... So it's also a historical fiction murder mystery. Mm-hmm. Is that the best way to spin yeah, it? Yeah, historical I guess? mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, the other book that I read it was an audio book via Libro FM Women and Other Monsters Building a New Mythology by Jess Zimmerman. It just came out March 8th of this year by Beacon Press. 
The audiobook is narrated by Vanessa Moyen, and I read this while I was driving around in the car, running errands, you know, as one rarely does these days. <laughs> so I, I was reading it in separate chunks of time. So a lot of it, you know how that goes when you haven't listened mm -hmm. to an audiobook in days, and then, yeah. So I enjoyed the listening of it. She takes a lot of the mythological characters from Greek mythology and talks about them while also talking about or writing about her memoir, you know, writing her memoir as a way to help women today become fiercer, more monstrous feminists. Hmm. So she talks a lot about relationships and anger, you know, women in anger and the history of women in anger and how women do need to have anger or re rewire themselves to have anger. You know, she talks about how when she was younger, she tried to downplay the sexism that she saw happening to other women or to herself, you know, just kind of mm -hmm. laugh along with it. And so when she started realizing how wrong it was and how harmful it was, she really had to like retrain her brain to have a go to anger as opposed to, you know, the complacency of smiling and just carrying on. That was very interesting. And I'm just amazed at all of the Greek monsters and how long women have been suffering at the hands of patriarchy. Mm. And how those stories are still going on today. Do you know how old she is? I'm just curious. You um, know what? Um, I think maybe approaching 40 or so. Okay, so she that's is, interesting. Yeah, I think yeah. she's younger than us. So some of the things she talks about, you know, for me, who's somebody that I'm in my mid-50s, like I've, you know, kind of been there, done that, read that. But it was still interesting to, you know, hear somebody a little bit younger talk about it and talking about it during the Trump administration and then also the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So, so it's, yeah, it's a memoir, but that uses these Greek mythological characters to help explain things, to help make sense out of her life, kind of interrogate situations and then help give women a roadmap today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting because I find in the Me Too movement, a lot of what you hear are the older women. Like I was listening to a group of journalists talking about this and how the older women felt like a lot of the treatment they had, they just felt like there was no alternative. And then they were so surprised as younger journalists started to come in and, and had kind of a zero tolerance policy for sexism and, you know, just all the other isms and whatever's that can happen with patriarchy, they almost still felt like there was no choice. And having younger people come in and shine a different light on it, you know, gave them the room to understand what was happening and what they'd faced all these years. So I was just wondering if she was like an older person looking back now, or if she was a younger person that, you know, was using current experiences. To, yeah, no, definitely that lens. younger yeah. generation from us. Yeah, for me, anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, because some of the cultural references she makes, I didn't get, you know, that yeah. I would recommend it. I again, I don't really, uh, you know, it was kind of a scattered listening experience mm -hmm. for me, but I listened to it. And, uh, it, you know, kept my interest. Again, mm -hmm. that was women and other monsters building a new mythology by Jess Zimmerman out now. Great. Before we get into Biblio Adventures, 
I wanted to just go over our read-alongs for everyone again. Oh, great. Thank you. It's a little confusing, as Jenny put on her Goodreads page. She says, it's a lot. It's a little confusing. So I'm not going to go through all the dates necessarily, but I'm going to just remind people that we're doing a dual read-along with Jenny from Reading Envy. That's our second quarter read-along. On the Book Cougars, we'll be reading Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And on Reading Envy, we'll be reading When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through, which is a poetry anthology edited by Joy Harjo. Our Goodreads pages have the you know, information about dates. They also have conversations started on both. Reading Envy has a Goodreads group discussion thread. Book Cougars has a group discussion thread for each of our books. Jenny actually has taken the anthology and broken it out by week starting in April, which is really helpful, I think. It's not like school, you know, there's no one's holding your foot to the flame to like, you know, keep on task exactly as she, as she has it set up. But it really is a helpful way to kind of just dig into it. Yeah, pace yourself a little bit. Yeah. And chat yeah. with other people about yeah. what you're currently reading. And Jenny does a great job of making conversation happen. She's really yes. great with that. Yeah, yes. So, you know, check out our show notes also for this episode. We'll have all of the dates in there for the, you know, Zoom discussion and things like that. There are still spots open in our Zoom discussion, which will take place on 530. So send us an email, bookcougars at gmail.com if you want to be part of that conversation. If you don't want to be in the Zoom discussion and you want to be in the Goodreads discussion, they are separate things. So feel free. Absolutely. There are already people chatting on Goodreads. <laughs> so tell me about your Biblio adventures, Chris. Uh, you know what? I had a couple this time. I'll just kind of quickly talk about them. Well, how about you? How many do you have? Do we need to ping pong it? Yeah, we can do that. Ping pong. Yeah. Okay. So the first one was Yale had a biography symposium and I was able to attend one of the events that they had. It was several days. And this was a conversation between Ruth Franklin, who wrote Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life, and Imani Perry, who wrote Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry, both biographies i've read both of those biographies interestingly both of them on audio oh yeah. which it's like oh i just thought about that as i was kind of like writing huh. some notes down it was a really interesting conversation unfortunately i couldn't hear some of it i was driving and one of the authors i don't know if it was her mic or her connection or something a lot of it kind of i was constantly turning the volume up and down kind of situation but it was a really interesting conversation. And one of the things they talked about was like, you know, do you start taking on some of the characteristics of the person you're writing a biography about? Oh, that's great fascinating. Question. Yeah. yeah. So that was really cool. And it was neat to see Imani Perry. I'd never, you know, attended an event with her. And obviously Ruth Franklin is like our fairy godmother in a way because... Our podcast was born the night that we saw her up at Northshire Bookstore in Vermont. That's right. Our full day of driving and going there and seeing her event. And that's when we turned to each other in the car and said, we should do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 125 episodes later, here, here we, we are. are. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? I attended an event with Kazuo Ishiguro and Kate Darling via the 
bookstores, politics and prose and Harvard bookstore. Kazuo Ishiguro has a new book that just came out called Clara in the Sun. Anne Kingman of Books on the Nightstand fame has declared it her favorite book of 2021. Wow. So intense. that's saying a lot. Yeah, that is. Even though she read it in 2020, she said. But <laughs> <laughs> um, this was a really interesting event. Kate Darling works for the MIT Media Lab. She's the author of The New Breed. And her interest is in how tech intersects with society. And this book, Clara and the Sun, is about an artificial intelligence. He doesn't like to use the word robot. I can't remember what he uses in, in place of that. And, you know, kind of what's happening in society. It takes place in a little slightly different futuristic society than we're living in. He refers to it as near-term future and society and people and the human condition is what he talks about. Interestingly, he said it started out as a children's story. And then his daughter, he thought it was going to be like for five years old with picture book, you know, like images and stuff. And he was thinking, oh, it's going to be enchanting and poignant. And then his daughter, Naomi, who is also an author, said, that sounds incredibly scary, Dad. Like, <laughs> that should not be a children's book. <laughs> so um, he went back and, you know, rethought everything and made it into an adult novel. Loneliness is the theme of the book. Um, it was a really fun event. I don't think it was recorded. If it was recorded, I will put, you know, a link to the video in the show notes. But that book, Clara and the Sun, is available now. And I'm waiting. My, I bought tickets for this event, and I'm waiting anxiously for my book to arrive and I will dig into it as soon as it does great it'll be some happy book mail yes yeah well the other event I intend attended was a community reads book this was uh, Simmons University it was a conversation with professor Ibram X Kendi who's the author of how to be an anti-racist and then Simmons University president Lynn Perry Wooten it was like an hour conversation. They did, you know, have some questions rolling in. The focus was really about the university and anti-racist practices. Just one thing that I thought, I'll just mention this, because a lot of that was specific. And I guess I could just say real quickly, he said about an anti-racist campus is to ensure that the curriculum is reflective of our multicultural society to foster research that is anti-racist research, or at least research that doesn't reinforce racist ideology. And then, of course, to have diverse, diverse faculty and administrators as well. But one of the questions that came up, too, was, you know, what to do now in this current situation that we're in? And uh, Kendi said that we need to really focus on the majority of people of color and white liberals and progressives and focus on them and getting them together. He said, because you cannot get the slaveholder and the abolitionists together. He's like, they're too far apart. So you need mm -hmm. to look at the most number of people who have the most in common and get them on the same path together, so to say. And of course, he's a huge advocate of history and people understanding history and knowing history and applying a lot of the lessons that we've already have to today's situation. Yeah. Yeah. Smart. Mm -hmm. He's such a smart man. I'm so glad you got to sit in on an event with him. Yeah. You know, a lot of his questions, he's not the greatest question answerer, 
I have to mm. say, because he goes to the big picture. Yeah. You know, like he's not going to answer a question really directly. He, you know, goes more to the the big picture, like I said. Well, he probably has his talking points, right? Yeah, talking like points and just like was. at what level, you know, he thinks about things probably, yeah. you know, like yeah. the more the global and in and, and, and policies, you know, he's mm-hmm. talking so much about the policy level a lot yeah. of the time. But yeah, it was great to see him. He has this cute little laugh that he does like <laughs> after he says things sometimes. It's, it's always yeah. great to like see an author's personality. Yes. In, in a video, yeah. real time, real time or recorded. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, I attended an event with Gregory Brown in conversation with our buddy Carrie Arsenault, who was the author of our last read-along, Milltown. And this was through Print Bookstore in Portland, Maine, which is a bookstore I love. I can't wait till we can travel again. And Gregory Brown is the author of The Lowering Days, which is a debut novel I talked about on episode 124. And Carrie just wrote a review of this book in the Boston Globe, which I will link to in the show notes. It was a glowing review. And I I think I emailed her and said, I thought of you so much when I was reading this book and wondered what you thought of it. And so it was so fun to read your review of the book. Uh, because the one of the um, story arcs in this book is about a mill. It's a mill town in Maine, which, you know, it's a fictional variety of that, whereas Carrie's was, you know, nonfiction. But the mill burns down, and it's not by accident. It's arson. So the one, only thing I want to talk about about the event, which was great, Carrie is great at moderating authors and, and having a good, interesting conversation. And obviously, they both have an attachment to Maine and an understanding of the landscape. But there's, I think I mentioned this, that there are portions of the book that are written in the Penobscot language. I asked a question about, you know, just does he speak the language? And how did he come to be able to do that in the book? Or did he have a translator? He did have a translator that helped him. He had two, I think. But what he did during the event that was so cool, there's a part of the book where a letter is written. And it's the young woman who started the fire. And she writes a letter to the paper, the newspaper, which is called The Lowering Days. And in this letter is a bunch of Penobscot language. And he played the audio from the audio book. of the letter it was really cool to hear it spoken aloud and it made me kind of want to go back and listen to the book so that you would get I mean there's not a lot of it but there are portions you know just of lines here and there that I thought oh it'd be so cool to hear it in the native tongue so I want to remind people about that book again it's called The Lowering Days by Gregory Brown it's out now I also, when I talked about the title, I forgot to, there's many meanings of the lowering days. One of the other meanings is it's the day that a boat is lowered into the water, which we're about to hit that season here, which is one of my favorite seasons when all of a sudden you start seeing boats moored again out on the water, you know? Yeah. So run and get this book. It's so good. I loved it. Excellent. <laughs> well, I had a couch biblio adventure of the movie variety I watched Bridget Jones's Baby from 2016. I've not heard of that. Oh, God, it was so bad. <laughs> it was bad. <laughs> it was written by Helen Fielding, who wrote, you know, Bridget Jones's Diary, the uh, the whole uh, series, Dan Mazur, and then Emma Thompson. And it starred, of course, Renee Zellweger. Colin Firth is in it. 
And then Patrick Dempsey plays the new love interest, you know, McSteamy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. From Grey's Anatomy. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It was just not really believable. I mean, not that any of those books necessarily right. are, you know, <laughs> but I, you know, we, Laura and I watched it together and we watched the whole thing. At one point she's like, do you want to stop? I was like, oh no, I'll, you know, let's just keep watching it. Let's just see, you know, yeah. how bad can it be? Wow. <laughs> The, the funniest line was one that uh, Emma Thompson delivers, because she's actually in the movie as well. She plays the doctor who's taking care of Bridget Jones as she's pregnant. Somebody says something like doing yoga, and Bridget says, fuck yoga. And the doctor, played by Emma Thompson, says, oh, I couldn't agree with you more. It's supposed to relax one, but I just spend the entire time clenching my sphincter in an effort not to fart. <laughs> Little insight into the humor. Yes. Well, and you can imagine Emma Thompson saying that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's not necessarily one I could read or one I could recommend. But if you have watched the first two Bridget Jones's movies or the books, you might want to check that one out. Well, maybe there's a reason I'd never heard of it. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think it did very well at the box office. Yeah. Well, um, the gentleman caller and I had two hot dates. It was so fun. Couch Biblio Adventure Dates. And one of them was watching a movie also. We watched News of the World, which is one I said I wanted to watch on Christmas Day and couldn't find it because I guess it was out in theaters, which was totally confusing to me because theaters in Connecticut, as far as I know, aren't open. But anyway, I finally was able to find it on Amazon. We did have to pay for it. This is based on the novel by Paulette Giles, which I loved. And it stars the movie stars Tom Hanks. And it's really atmospheric. I think they got the feeling of the book. The basis of the story is about a young woman who has been, her family was murdered and she was um, taken captive in a Native American tribe, which she actually really came to love and enjoy. And historically, I guess that is part of the history of some children who were, quote, abducted by the Natives. Tom Hanks' character is a a man whose job it is to literally read the newspapers. He goes from town to town and makes money by reading the newspapers, comes across her and tries to help her get home. And all sorts of action ensues. It's always hard for me to know when you've read a book, you know, like if the movie, Jim and I talked a lot about like what he got out of it because I felt like there were parts of the book obviously that were missing, but he really enjoyed the movie as well. So I would recommend reading the book and then watching the movie, but I always do that. So. Yeah. So was it kind of like, I saw, I saw some previews and it re- made me think of True Grit, the yes. movie adaptations like Grizzly Old Man and mm-hmm. a Young Girl. Yeah, I would say this young girl, though, isn't spunky. Like in True Grit, the young woman is the main character and she's the one that, you know, is driving the movie, whereas this young woman doesn't speak much, you okay. know, so she's not, she is the main character but tom hanks does most of the acting i mean not acting no she does plenty of acting she did a great job he does most of the talking okay you know yeah all right so um yeah and then we also attended the cider event just last night with our affiliate bookstore bank square books and savoy bookstore with uh the book american cider authors Dan Pucci and Greg Cavallo and then they also had Tapped Apple Cidery which is right there in downtown Westerly near Savoy and it was a really fun event I mean the book is 
all about history, Chris. I think it would just be really fascinating to you. Like one of the myths they wanted to dispel is that people stopped drinking apple cider because of prohibition. There's a whole section of the book that dispels that myth. And actually, a lot of what happened was about what happened in the apple industry and how the crops were grown and how the apples were exported and then apples being grown to manufacture applesauce and apple juice and, you know, becoming more of a commodity crop and things like that. It's really fascinating. And the book is separated out into sections of the United States. So like there's a section on New England, for example. And they were just super fun guys, super interested in this subject matter. And the event was really fun. So, um, so does yeah. all apple cider, all apple cider doesn't have alcohol. That was a, were you going to ask a question about that? I remember when you first brought this event up. You know, I didn't ask that question and I didn't get a chance to ask. See, I thought some of the reason why apple cider would have kind of fallen out of favor, hard cider, I should call it would have fallen out of favor was just because people did drink it because water was not safe to drink. And I didn't get a chance to ask that question, sadly. Yeah. 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 I'm just curious. Yeah. I did ask them if um, cider could be aged like wine. Mm-hmm. And they said it's, for the most part, it's not, you know, manufactured that way. But there are some cideries that are doing that now. But they made the point of like, if you spend a lot of time doing that, then you don't have fresh cider, you know, hard cider to sell and you need to sell in order to keep your place afloat, which of course makes sense. But right. some people are kind of getting into trying to age it a mm. little bit. Interesting. You know? Okay. Yeah. But they said that there's a book, I didn't write down the name of it, that they used as a reference where a, a man has tracked every variety of apple throughout history and there are over 14,000. Yeah, I remember seeing that book. Wasn't that book yeah. listed in that one book, like a thousand books read before you die or something? I bet it was. Because I remember, yeah. did, I, I yeah. almost I almost wonder if we've talked about it in the past. Yeah. Or just, I guess it's like a huge book. Like they said, it's as big as a door frame. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Maybe that's a yeah. different book then. Holy crap. That's a big book. <laughs> Yeah. And they said it's a great reference. And obviously, all those 14,000 varieties aren't available now. Mm -hmm. But it's like throughout history, there have been all these different kinds. So it was a fascinating event. I really enjoyed it. And again, the name of that book is American Cider. And it's out now. And the authors are Dan Pucci and Greg Cavallo. Very cool. Do you have any upcoming jaunts, Chris? I do. I have two coming up. So March 25th, there are so many events happening on March 25th. I wish I would have started keeping a record of all of them. It's insane, the number of events, at least 20 events I've come across on March 25th. I don't know if this is like, you know, the most auspicious date of the month or something. I wonder. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this is an event with Julia Alvarez. It's through the Hartford Public Library. It's the NEA Big Reads book selection. Um, and it's with Julia Alvarez. She's going to be in conversation with Connecticut writer and poet Sarahi Almonte. I haven't read Julia Alvarez. I had the pleasure of meeting her one time. She came into my bookstore to sign, to you know, do a signing, just to sign books. Stock signing is what they would call them. 
and she was lovely and her husband was with her and I thought I need to read something by her. And of course, you know, that was like now what, 15, 20 years ago and I still haven't yet. So long story short, that is an event on March 25th. That's funny. I I was like, oh, maybe mine's on March 25th. Mine's on March 24th Hmm. and it's with Venda La Vida. It's the book launch for We Run the Tides and it's through the Sausalito Books by the Bay bookstore it's 5 30 pacific time 8 30 eastern time i'm really looking forward to hearing her talk about this book yeah that's so cool i mean that is one of the silver linings of the pandemic that you can see so many more authors talk about their books yeah it is a a really great thing and i i hope bookstores and libraries are able to keep that going yeah so the other event i'm signed up for it's actually a fundraiser It's a preview event for Dr. Melissa Homestead's new book that's coming out, The Only Wonderful Things, The Creative Partnership of Willa Cather and Edith Lewis. She's going to be in conversation with Alex Ross, who's the music critic for The New Yorker and author of the book Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music, which I know Robin, our listener in California, has checked the book out of the library because there's a chapter on Cather that she wanted to read. So this book, it's going to be a big game changer in Cather studies, in LGBTQ, especially lesbian studies, and also creativity studies, because she's really looking at Edith Lewis, who was Cather's partner of 40 years, who was an editor in her own right, and how she not only helped shape Cather's life as a human being, but helped shape her writing as well. Uh, Dr. Homestead actually, you know, looked at manuscripts that are, you know, still in existence, thanks to archives, where it's Edith's handwriting on the manuscript suggesting changes. But it's been a long time coming that Edith Lewis gets paid attention to as a full partner in that relationship. So I'm looking forward to this fantastic sounding book and the correction to the historical record. So anyway, this first event on March 26th, it's also a part fundraiser for the National Willa Cather Center. So there is a pricey entrance fee to it, one, to just watch the event, or two, to get the book and be involved in the event. Um, But Melissa Homestead has said she will be having other events, too, that will be free and open to the public. Oh, good. That's great. Oh, I know you're going to love that. Yeah, I can't wait. I actually have two copies of the book on order so i did you know i contributed to this fundraiser and i'm getting a book that way and then i also ordered one directly from the publisher the book doesn't come out until i think april 1st but some people are already receiving it it's already shipping okay yeah great so upcoming reads i have one on my list how about you i have three Ooh. I'm I'm hopeful that I get a lot of reading time coming up. <laughs> Dare to dream. Nice. I have Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro, who I talked about in my Biblio Adventures, and that should be on its way to me from Politics and Prose. And then thanks to NetGalley, I have a copy of The Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead, and this book is coming out on May 4th. I love Maggie Shipstead, and I've been anxiously awaiting her next novel. And then What's Mine is Yours by Naima Koster, who her debut novel, Halsey Street, got all manner of acclaim last year or the year before. This is her sophomore effort. 
So I'm looking forward to reading that one as well. And I think I have a thank you to Edelweiss for that one. Okay. I can't remember. Or Nick Alley, one or the other. So what about you? Well, I have on my books, um, These Women by Ivy Pochada. And that's for Colleen's birthday read-along that she's hosting. And this book, it's really getting great praise. And I don't know that much about it other than that it's about these five really different women whose lives are in danger. And they're somehow connected to the same man, but they don't necessarily know it. It's shortlisted for an Edgar Award for Best Novel, which is pretty cool. So obviously there's a mystery thriller element to it. And I'll be reading that. And also, uh, I guess there's two upcoming reads. I'm going to get back to The Shipping News by Annie Prue because my book club is rescheduled. So I look forward to getting back into that as well. Awesome. That sounds great. Well, everyone, up next is our interview with author, poet, Shuli Kaywood talking about her new poetry collection, Trouble Can Be So Beautiful, at the beginning. The poetry collection is available now. You can go to shulikaywood.com to order her book. And also, um, we talk about her doodles. She also has her doodle cards available at her website as well. I wanted to just say one thing about the conversation we had with her where we talk about poems being accessible. We talked about this a little bit at the beginning. We didn't want to imply, I don't think, during that, that, you know, to be elitist or anything like that. Because that, I think we talk about how sometimes the poetry books that are given awards are completely inaccessible. I think sometimes it's they're given an award because they're trying, they're using techniques that are really unusual and, you know, things like that. What I think we were all trying to say is we like to understand the poems that we're reading. Yeah. You know, but right. they can still be like complicated, layered, rich poems. They're not simple. Right. You know, well, and there's always different award judges, too. And so much of it depends on the judge's taste and what they're they might be looking for certain things thematically or style wise. Yeah. But I yeah. think, you know, that's one reason why poetry gets a bad rap is maybe that there are inaccessible poems out there or people think of, you know, poems that are rhymy. Right. And more yeah. limericky yeah. maybe or something like that. But that there right. are all these poems and poets out there who are writing in such different ways about different subjects. And I think we also just want people to know there's there's a poem or a poet out there for everyone. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So enjoy this conversation with Shuli. Hi, everyone. We are so excited to have back with us today author Shuli Kaywood. For longtime listeners, you'll know that we've had Shuli on the podcast. This will be her fourth time. For new listeners, I thought I would briefly go over your books, Shuli, and let them know the episodes that you were on with us. With your memoir, Going in Goodbye, you were on episode 22. With your book, 52 Things I Wish I Could Have Told Myself When I Was 17, you were on episode 64. And your short story collection, A Small Thing to Want, you shared with us on episode 100. But today, you're here to talk with us about your new poetry collection called Trouble Can Be So Beautiful at the Beginning. It, it is so great to be back on with you. And I cannot believe it's been that many. I mean, I can't believe it's been that many episodes, which I really appreciate, but I can't believe it's been, it feels like so long ago 
that we initially talked. Yeah. A lot's happened in our lives. Absolutely. Well, I was, I was thinking about how your kind of your career has mimicked the book cougars history in the sense that you've had a book come out every year that we've had our podcast, which has been really convenient for all of us. And um, in the poetry collection and the acknowledgments, you state that you've been working on this one the longest for 20 years. I don't want to, you know, announce to the public your age, but you are a proud middle-aged woman like us. So that's been a little while. It has been a little while. It's uh, the book I've been working on by far the longest. I started writing the other books, you know, within the last decade. And this one I started in my, I mean, there are a few poems from my college years. I studied poetry and poetry writing in college and always intended to go into graduate school right afterwards to study poetry. That didn't end up happening for a lot of reasons, but I continue to write ever since I was in college. So, and I also don't want to say my age, but let's just say it's been a long time. And I always got involved in writing groups or started writing groups and just continue to write all these years. Poetry was my go-to to heal myself, to figure out myself. And so I've been writing a long time. And of course, a lot of those poems didn't go in, but I have been writing a lot. And so this collection is, you know, based on all those years of writing. That's great. Well, Shuli, it's so great to see you. Um, I know on our first time that we had you on the show, we did it all through cell phone and we've graduated to Zoom now. So it's great to be able to see you. Talking about your poetry and how long you've been writing it, one of the questions I had for you is, how do you decide to write a poem? Like, is it an image that comes to you or is it a feeling you want to capture? How do you start a poem? That's a great question. I think I start poems for many reasons. Often it's from my life. So it might be a memory comes into my head and I want to capture that moment in some way. It could be that I'm, I've been taking a lot of classes where I'm given a prompt. So it could be, it could come from a prompt, but usually just something comes into my head and it feels like it needs to come onto the page, whether it's a memory or an incident that, for example, the other day an incident happened, I was having a conversation with my parents in the morning and by afternoon I wanted to write about it. So a poem fell onto the page. It just depends. It's interesting. I think poetry is just such a big part of my life that I write about all sorts of things. When I was younger and I had a lot more angst about relationships, I'm happily married now. We, we have our share of conflicts, but by and large, it's fairly peaceful. But when I was having a lot of angst about relationships, I would often write poems in my journal that weren't going to go anywhere, but that just helped me sort out what I was dealing with. And that was hugely helpful. Well, it's interesting because I read the collection from the first poem to the last over the course of the last couple of weeks. And it really, you know, you really are sharing a lot about yourself and your family life, but also history kind of weaves itself in, in the poems as well, which I found so interesting. I mean, there's, you know, the Obamas show up in one of your poems, you know, and I just, mm -hmm. I loved that. And so how did, I mean, this is kind of piggybacking on Chris's question. Also, when you start, to, when you have one of those thoughts that comes into your mind or some emotions you're working through, when you sit down to write the poem, do you just write freely and then come back and kind of peel things away to finesse it? Yes, I write, I, I try to write freely because I feel like 
those that's the best writing for me is when I just let my brain do what it wants to do on the page and I don't try to edit or stop it. And so I'll do that. And then I, I, I always copy and paste and then start taking it apart, adding to it. I copy and paste. And so you'll see, you know, when you actually see a poem in my computer, you'll see the, all these iterations of it. You know, when you scroll down the document, you know, the time before and the time before, but yes, I start peeling away, adding to it, trying to figure out what it wants to say. Now, when I'm really lucky, which isn't very often, I will have a poem just fall into the page and it doesn't need, in my opinion, much revision, but that is rare. So usually I am peeling and adding and peeling and adding and trying to figure out, like I've been working on a poem today and I can tell it's not right. So I just keep chiseling it, trying to figure out what it needs. And it's still not done. I can tell something's off about it. I just don't know exactly what. So we'll, we'll see. So how long does it take you to write a poem? Now, I, I know every poem is different, but like in general, I mean, you've mentioned that some just fall onto the page and you're, you're happy with it and others, how others, long, I mean, do you tweak some of them for? Others for months and months and sometimes years. Wow. Usually mm. months though, I would say it usually falls in the realm of weeks to months that a, a poem uh, needs to grow and take shape and figure out and you know I may love it initially and think it doesn't need revision but then I'll look at it two months later and I think yeah that that needs something I thought it was really good at the time but now I need some tweaking or some major overhauling. One of the other things that I think is so interesting about the collection and Chris and I are picking your brains here about poetry because we have an upcoming read-along with Jenny from Reading Envy with a, a poetry anthology and we're also hoping to read some of Mary Oliver's poetry handbook mm-hmm. as well. And one of the things that I found fascinating about this collection is, and I don't know the names of them, but there are various styles of poems and you really utilize white space in your poems. There's one in particular called Immigrant where the the words really float across the page in an interesting way. Can you tell us maybe if there's a name of that style or why you chose to use white space the way you did in that poem? I was trying to copy what I'd seen other people do, but because I don't, if you look at, that's I think the only poem in the collection that uses white space in that way. I usually don't. And I thought I'm seeing what other poets are doing. Let me try to do it. And so that was my, poem where I was trying to work with space more and just experimenting. And I think it's always helpful when you're writing poetry or writing anything really to try what other people are doing and try it on and see if it works. If it doesn't, you can always take it out or go back to your regular style. But I do like experimenting and I do try to read what other poets are doing and try to mimic it in some way. And that does not mean taking lines. It means trying to figure out how their, uh, what their style is and how they got to it and, and experimenting. It's really fun. It's cool. So how do you read poetry? Do you buy poetry collections or read poetry online? How do you find these poets that you're reading? That's a great question. And sometimes I feel like I still don't know how I find poets I like. I run a prompt writing workshop and when I run it, we always look at a poem And then we talk about it and then I create a prompt for them to write off of based on the poem, somehow tangentially or directly related to the poem. But because all the writers who come are not poets and plus my taste is always accessible poetry. So I try to find things that I hope that everybody can understand. That's really important to me. 
there are so many styles of poetry and I don't like poems that are not accessible. So that's one thing that I'm, you know, you'll see the prize winning poets and often they are poems that I don't necessarily like. So I do look a lot on the internet for, if I, especially if I find a, a magazine, for example, I'm a big fan of the Sun magazine. It's always nice when you find a journal that you like the work that's in there. And I consistently like their work and will look to the Sun to find work. I'll also look online. There's some great Platypus Press puts out a really great uh, online journal called Wildness. I often like their poetry. And so it's just a matter of trying to, you know, look around. I look on Poetry Foundation. We'll search poets and try to see which poems I like of theirs. And usually it's in, I, I love to read, but it's often in also for my prompt writing class to try to make sure I find something that if I love it, hopefully they will love it too. Oh, that's great. I thank you for talking about that because there are some times when I, and Emily and I were just talking about this, that, you know, you hear this poem from somebody that you absolutely love their poem and then you seek them out and you realize, wow, I don't like any of their other poems. That happens. <laughs> yeah, that happens to me a lot with actually with there are not that many writers in general that I love all their work. It's it's the rare writer for me. And it's not because I have great taste or something. It's that I will, like you said, you'll I'll often like something and I love one or two poems out of a collection and the rest is like, it's fine, but I will love a couple of poems. And to me, that's worth the collection. Yeah, and I mean, I'm like that with poems, too, that sometimes there are poems that really speak to me at specific times in my life. And then I go back to read it, you know, five years later and think, huh, I wonder what it was about that poem that really did it for me at that time. It's not that I don't like it now, but it doesn't, you know, wow me. I mean, I always have a poem that's up on my bathroom mirror. And mm -hmm. it has to be a poem that I want to read every day when I'm brushing my teeth, sometimes several times a day. Nice. Um, and you know, sometimes I don't want to read it anymore after a year, but that's okay. So I, I wanted to ask you a little bit, you know, Chris touched on how you get inspiration for your writing. And this last year has been a, a really interesting year for writers. And you ended up looking for inspiration in a really different way this year. And you became a doodler. Can you talk oh. about that a little bit? <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that. <laughs> I, yes. So in... Last May, my short story collection came out and I, the couple of months preceding it, I was really busy trying to figure out online launch marketing stuff, which I was quite a novice at. And so I didn't spend a lot of time writing. That's all to say. I didn't spend a lot of time writing in March and April when the pandemic was, you know, really full on uh, starting in our country. And so in May, when my book came out, it came out on May 3rd, and I wanted to do something to really get started again with writing. And I did start taking a class, which was hugely helpful. But I also started, I wanted to do something, I wanted to learn something that was took me out of my comfort zone. And I've always said, I'm a terrible, terrible drawer. I'm just terrible. I can draw a stick figure and that's about it. I decided to go on Skillshare and try a class. And there was a doodle class and it was for beginners and it was to open up your creativity. I've never really known of a writer. I mean, I'm sure they're out there that turn to art in a different way completely. I mean, I, I think people say, oh, I'll write nonfiction and then switch back to fiction or something, but to really use just drawing. I think I'm easier on myself with doodling than 
I am with writing. So it's a nice outlet for me. That's great. It's so important to have creative expression in that way. And just mm -hmm. to comment on your doodles, I do love the colors. Very oh, colorful. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's fun. I need something happy in my life. Yeah, I mean, nice. I have a lot of things that are happy in my <laughs> life, but I like to cheer myself up when I'm feeling lonely and by doodling. Mm -hmm. uh, well, and I want to put a plug in for your doodles. I just bought a set of cards. Shuli sells her doodles on car note cards on her website. And I just bought a set and I'm having so much pleasure mailing them around to people because they are really happy and colorful and mine have a good message, which is follow your heart which, you know, who doesn't need to do that more often? So I'm spreading <laughs> that message. For sure. <laughs> I was going to ask, Shuli, we don't usually do this, but I'm wondering if you have a favorite, maybe I shouldn't say favorite, that's not fair, just like you're not supposed to name your favorite child. Do you have a poem in the collection that you'd like to read aloud to us, just so folks can get a sense of your writing style? Sure. I'll read one of my dad's favorite poems in this collection. I have a cousin too who likes this poem and has it on her wall. So this poem is called Cooking. I used to know how to toss things in a skillet, how to crumble leftovers together and make a decent meal. Now I only follow recipes, go down the list of ingredients, check them all off. There are rules to know, rules I once ignored. A single ingredient before another, only this much of that one thing, minced ginger, tablespoon of curry, quarter cup of scallions, or it might ruin the dish, throw all the flavors off, make a mess of the intended taste. I used to date boys who bent rules, who said things they did not mean, or did things they wanted to retrieve later with mouthfuls of apologies. They broke up and came back, but it was hard to tell after a while if they were coming or going, if it was the first time or the last. I dated men with no jobs, but with professed ambitions, men with demands about how I spent my Sunday evenings, men who flirted hard, but not always with me. They broke rules, but I broke them too. I redated men, I dated men with cats, men separated but not yet divorced, men who held Bibles too tightly in their hands, men with tempers, men who loved their mothers but did not like them. I went from winging it, thrashing for sweet when all was bitter, to going back to the list, kind, honest, makes me laugh, blends into my family, lets me speak, says what he means. And then the rules, take one big trip before committing, watch how he talks about his last love, don't skip steps, don't accept substitutions, remember a simmer works better than a boil, if it burns, toss it out, start all over, don't try to save something already losing all its flavor. Mm, I love that <laughs> poem. Funny. I actually have that poem in my journal because that poem was published in um rust and moth if i'm not yeah. mistaken and i so i you know i probably broke all manner of copyright laws and i printed it off the internet and put it in my journal so <laughs> well, as long as you're not Thank making you. money off your journal <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah, i think i think you're good <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> oh, gosh. Thank you for sharing that, Julie. Beautiful poem. And I really like the different, you know, geographical locations, too. You know, there's Mexico, Kentucky, Ohio, the Katy Perry poem, Katy Perry is crooning. Katy Perry is crooning and won't stop just because I did. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is such a powerful poem about a small town life and how you know people but don't know them but you know intimate details 
And I just think your poems are so accessible. And I really have enjoyed I'm kind of unlike Emily, I'm not reading it chronologically, I'm just kind of skipping around for the most part. And I just realized too, this is a bookmark I'm using. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's my bookmark since you all can't see it's yeah. my bookmark from the going and goodbye. Yeah. Shirley's Thank memoir. You. I uh, looked in my bookmark drawer and that was there and I thought, well, that's appropriate. So anyway, I do really enjoy your poetry. I'm not just saying that because you're a friend or a friend of Emily's. <laughs> it's very accessible. So I do want to ask a question on top of all of that. You know, what is the point of unaccessible poems? Why do people write them? And why do editors choose to publish them? <laughs> I have no answer for you because I don't like them and I don't, I hope I don't write them. I don't really know. And I don't always know why a, a book will win a prize. I remember in my MFA program, we had to read some books uh, of poetry. And I remember sitting at home and thinking, I do not understand anything in this book. <laughs> And I read something to my husband and I said, do you know what this means? And he said, no. <laughs> and so I went to class and then the professor really, I mean, took it apart and it, it explained it so well. And that was, and then I could appreciate it, but I didn't like that. I had to have somebody guide me so much in order to be, for me to understand it and appreciate it. And that could just be my own, you know, not having the education to have interpreted those poems. So I'm not putting it on the poet at all. I'm putting it on me, but that's not the kind of collection I would like to read personally. Thank you for trying to answer that unanswerable question. <laughs> I don't know, but it's not the collections that I pick up. Let's put it that way, but they win prizes. So, you know, they're doing something that people all over the country think are wonderful. And that's great. I'm very happy for those people that they win prizes. And yeah. that's, that's great. Right. Well, I was going to say, you know, I wonder if it's, I mean, this might be a terrible comparison to those, you know, to in, as far as inaccessible poems are concerned, but, you know, sometimes I'll go to an art museum and there'll be that very famous painting. That's one red dot in the middle of the canvas. And I'm like, well, you know, it's not, not pretty, but I just don't quite get it. And I think that's part of what, art is all about. There's all different kinds and all different avenues that people find fascinating and interesting. Very but I true. too have always been a fan of a poem that feels accessible to me. Mm -hmm. So yep. yeah, same. Well, Shuli, as is always the case, we could talk to you forever. But we know you have, uh, you know, you have poems to write and things to do. But we want to remind people that you do have four books now, which as your friend, I'm so very proud of you. They're all available on shulikaywood.com. We will put that in the show notes as well. Also, I highly encourage people to check out her doodles. She has all manner of doodle postcards available. She also has her books available in different ways where you can buy them together or buy them separately. We encourage you to do that. We love all of her books here at the, at the Book Cougars. We do for sure. And I'd like to ask one more question, if I may. Sure. We tend to ask this one of writers, what are you currently working on now? if it's something you can talk about. Oh, sure. I am working on two things. I have a second poetry collection that's in the works. I'm about, I'd say about halfway there. I thought I was much further along and then I went back and looked at all the poems and I don't want to include anything that I'm just sort of like, I like it, but I don't love it. And so I got rid of half the poems that I used to love a few months back. And so I'm now at about the halfway mark because I got rid of a, a ton of them and I'm still writing. So 
And then the second thing is a story collection. Um, this story collection I might have talked about in a last in the last time we spoke when I was because uh, I had already started it the last time we spoke. I'm working on a story collection that is of linked stories. And many of those stories are about a group of friends who went to college together. And it's about some of those stories in college and then beyond college and what's happening with them. Not all the stories in the collection are these characters, but most of the collection are these seven college friends and kind of what happens to them. And I have finished, I think, my last story in that collection. It's technically long enough to be a short story collection, but I may end up adding one more story. We'll see. So those are the two projects that I have right now that are taking my attention. Great. Thank you for sharing that with us. I also want to put a plug in that I recently just took a creative nonfiction writing seminar with you, Shuli. It was an hour and a half, I think. I'm just starting to dabble and trying a little bit of writing. I have to say, just by taking that one session with you, I definitely feel like a better reader. And that is amazing to me. I mean, not that I thought I was an amazing reader, but just how an hour and a half working with you, I could feel that way. Can you share with the listeners the writing seminars that you offer? Yes, I, that has been one thing that has been great to come out of the pandemic for me. I have wanted to teach for a long time. And when I say teach, not at the college level, just, or at the high school level or any other level, just my own workshops and seminars. And I've been doing teaching in terms of just one-on-one -on -one with people, but I'd wanted to offer classes. And when the pandemic hit and people got used to Zoom, I realized that I could offer classes online and not have to get a room somewhere and, you know, rent a place and, you know, put up money in that way that I could just get a Zoom account and see if people not only locally, but all over the country would be willing to take my classes. And the first workshop I did, I offered it to just my friends, my writer friends, so because I, I knew that they would give me honest feedback. And I, I said, I'll give it to you for free, but you have to fill out a survey every single day of the workshop. And so they did. They <laughs> detail their opinions every day. And they gave me great feedback. And then I started offering it to the public. And I've loved, loved teaching. So right now I'm teaching a primarily a memoir essay, personal essay, five-week seminar that's one day a week. And then I am going to offer that class that you took, Emily, again. It's Introduction to Flash Nonfiction. Flash is short and nonfiction is true stories, basically. So it's short, true stories. And it's just a little primer for people who don't know anything about it and want some writing techniques. And then I have the prompt writing sessions that I do every other Tuesday with my publisher. And those are open to the public too. And I'm loving, loving doing that. It's been a really, really nice thing to come out of the pandemic for me. That's great. Thank you for telling us about those. And I took one of the, your hour long, not a workshop. What would you call that? Would you call that a it's workshop? A, yeah, it was a workshop. It was a prompt session. Prompt session. Um, That's it. Yeah. And yeah. I got so much out of it too, just the hour. So I oh, encourage great. listeners, if you want to get into writing or if you're already writing, to definitely check out what Shuli has to offer. And we'll definitely put links in the show notes. That would be great. And I have one story I'd like to tell about my friend, Emily. Uh-oh. <laughs> This book that came out, this poetry collection that we're talking about, Trouble Can Be So Beautiful at the Beginning, is a book that I had submitted to different contests and awards over the years um, in a much shorter form, in a chapbook form, which is a short collection. And this is the 
first time that I had it as a full length collection. And there was an award that I was interested in. And I, but I decided that it probably wouldn't win. So I wasn't going to send it in. And I was talking to my friend, Emily Fine, one day on the phone and I mentioned it and she asked me some questions and I said, well, I'm not, I'm actually not going to send it. And I don't, I don't think I would win. And she said, oh no, you are sending it in. <laughs> and she said it in a way that Emily says, I don't remember her words exactly, but basically she wasn't going to take no for an answer. I knew when the boss says I need to turn something in that I should turn it in. And so I sent it off probably the next day to the award and it won. And so I just want to say it's good to have friends who push you and who support you. And Emily, you have done that in spades for years. I appreciate it. Thank you. This book wouldn't be here without you. Thank you, Shuli. That's really sweet. You know, it's actually an interesting story because, you know, I'm not just bossy, everybody. I mean, I, I do have a tendency towards being bossy. Apparently, I've learned, you know, you learn things new every day. In my 50s, I've learned that Capricorns tend to be bossy. Who knew? You and I but do anyway, boss each other I, around. Part of it. <laughs> yes, we do. But I also think just for, you know, not to overgender this conversation, but I think women in particular in the workplace are known to not try to do things unless they think they're like 100% prepared to do it. In this particular case, what my memory is, is there were certain requirements they had. There were certain themes that they were asking for. And Shuli was just sure that her poems didn't carry those themes. And I think my advice to you was, let them decide that. Don't decide it for them. And, you know, apparently they thought that your poems had the themes they were looking for. And the book won, and here it is in our hands. So congratulations. You know, I don't want to take too much credit. You did all of the hard work of all the writing over those many years. But I'm glad that my encouragement helped you hit that send button. Well, you have encouraged me a lot over the years. And I really, I really, if you had not said that, this book would not be here. Thank you. It's amazing. Great story. Thank you both for talking mm -hmm. about that. Friends are wonderful. We're so glad you were here to talk with us again. I'm going to say the name of the book one more time. It's a poetry collection with a beautiful cover. It's called Trouble Can Be So Beautiful at the Beginning by Shuli Suchtel Kaywood. Congratulations, Shuli. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me on again. I cannot thank you all enough. It's our pleasure. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.